Well, uh, today we are going to jump right into some controversial waters. We're starting a brand new series, and the, the text that's going to serve as the framework for the whole thing is probably one of the most controversial sentences ever written in the history of humankind. If you have your Bibles, you can find it right there at the very beginning. If you have your Bibles, open with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This, of all of, yeah, nice, of all of the sentences ever written, and there's been a lot of sentences written in human history, this is arguably the most controversial. Here we go. It says this. Oh, and I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one free today. We keep a stack at the, both of the entrance slash exits each and every week, and they're there for you. Please take one if you don't have one at home. All right, here it is, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this wasn't originally written in English, and so you've got a translation in your hand unless you're reading from Hebrew. And, and your translation is probably very, very close to the one I just read. There's really no argument here. This is what it's saying. It's saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I see a lot of new faces, at least new to ECC. And I want to let you know that in this series, if you, if you stick it out with us, you're going to learn a lot of things about us just in this series. Number one, you're going to learn that we believe that the Bible is our standard for faith and conduct. And so if the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we're going with that. But here's another thing, amen. But here's another thing that you're going to find too. You're going to find that most of us at this church, at least the, the leadership and most of the congregation, we believe that science and Christianity, science and scripture, they're compatible. They're compatible, amen. Science and, and scripture are compatible because the same God that created the heavens and the earth, he also created the natural laws that govern them. So that's another thing you'll discover here along the way in this series. And then number three, and this is really the focus of today's message, um, number three you're going to find, at least hopefully you'll see this with your own eyes, that we're gonna, we do our absolute best at this church, as best we can, to respond to those who disagree with us with respect and with integrity and with tact. Can I get an amen on that one too? We, we do the best that we can. Now, unfortunately, when it comes to Genesis 1-1, respect and integrity intact, they often get thrown, excuse me, right out the window. Here's an example of what I mean. Every time I talk on creation or evolution or origins, these types of things, it seems like there's always a headline in some magazine that comes out right at the same time. It's, it's just a, this is a topic that comes out always. Last time I was in an airport, uh, this is the one <clears throat> that I saw uh, it says, the war on science. You know, there's this battlefield mentality when it comes to these, some of the issues that we're at war with one another. And then specific to evolution, you know, the war here is that <clears throat> people believe, some believe it never happened, and they say that's the equivalent of, of war here. Um, one of the combatants in this battle is a nam man named Richard Dawkins. He's the author of several books, including one called The God Delusion. Uh, prior to the summer, I'd seen a whole lot of uh, Dawkins' quotes, but I'd never read one of his books, often because they're really thick, you know. And, and so I, I took a look at, I thought, you know, for this series, I want to see um, what he says. I don't want to read about what people say he says. I want to I see what does he say himself. And so I've spent uh, the last couple months um, reading through 437 pages of uh, his book on, on evolution. It's called The Greatest Show on Earth. Now, one of the things that really... I was taken back by when I read this book was the tone that he sets. The tone that, that he sets. Let me, let me show you just his own words here. Uh, the tone that he sets as he goes out to try to make his case. He says this. He says, 
Uh, here's one part. And this is just in chapter 1, so he just comes out just firing. He says this, bishops and theologians who have attended to the evidence for evolution have given up the struggle against it. All except the woefully uninformed are forced to accept the fact of evolution. I shall be using the name history deniers for those people who deny evolution. And I want to hit pause right here. He's not just talking about evolution. He's talking about his interpretation of an entire worldview here. If you disagree with it, you're a history denier, he says. Evolution is a fact, and again, that's code for his understanding of evolution and how it all plays out. Uh, this is basically, my book is a fact, and this book will demonstrate that my book is a fact. No reputable scientist disputes it. No unbiased reader will close the book doubting it. Now, in this same chapter, what he does, he gives us an illustration. He, he says, imagine that you're a teacher. You're a teacher who... Who you're, you're trying to teach Roman history, and you're trying to teach the Latin language. So imagine you're this teacher, and what you want is for your class to hear this truth. You want to, you want to tell your class about the, the Romans and this wonderful language. But here's, he says, what the problem is in his own words. He goes, imagine that's the case, yet you find your precious time continually preyed upon by a, quote, bang pack of ignoramuses, who with strong and political, especially financial support, scurry about tiresomely, attempting to persuade your unfortunate pupils that the Romans never existed. So instead of devoting your full attention to the noble vocation of a classical scholar and teacher, you're forced to divert your time and energy to defending that the Romans never existed at all. A defense against an exhibition of ignorant prejudice that would make you weep if, it weren't, if you weren't too busy fighting it. And then he makes the jump where everyone sees it's going. The plight of many science teachers today is no less dire. When they attempt to expound the central and guiding principle of biology, when they honestly place the living word in, world in its historical context, which means evolution, they explore and explain the very nature of life itself. They are harried and stymied, hassled and bullied, and even threatened with the loss of their jobs. At the very least, time is wasted at every turn. They are more likely to receive menacing letters from parents. They have to endure sarcastic smirks, closed folded arms of brainwashed children. All right. Now, we're going to look at the substance of his arguments in week three. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. What I'd like to focus on today is the approach. That's what I'd like to focus on today. The approach that he's taking. After offending those who see things differently than he does, Dawkins actually says this. He says, the history deniers themselves are among those I'm trying to reach <laughs> with this book. I'm glad you had that reaction because that was mine too. I'm like, really? This is what you're trying? Is repeatedly insulting those you're trying to convince the best way to open up a conversation? No, no. And unfortunately, regardless of where you fall on things surrounding Genesis 1-1 and evolution and all those ideas, Regardless of where you fall, I, I want to say these kind of attacks just aren't in your own best interest if you're trying to open up a conversation. Well, if you do believe Genesis 1-1 to be true, here's something I'd like you to consider today. And there's a place to write this in the green insert in your, um, in your bulletin. The deep truths of Scripture are too important to be undermined by what I'm going to call artificial intelligence. And here's what I mean by that. Let me say it one more time what I just put up here. The deep truths of Scripture are too important to be undermined by artificial intelligence. Here's what I mean by an artificial intelligence. It could take many forms. Excuse me. 
including these four forms. Here are four forms of artificial intelligence. There's what we call straw man arguments. There are ad hominem attacks. There's exaggerated appeals to authority. And then facts that should have been fact checked. Now, in different times down the road, we'll go into these in more depth. I just want to just kind of put them out there today and also point out that Dawkins engaged in three of these tactics in the sentences I showed you earlier. When Dawkins says everyone that's weighed the evidence agrees with him, that's a straw man argument. When Dawkins says that those who disagree with him are, quote, a paying pa bang pack of ignoramuses, that's ad hominem attack. And when Dawkins states that no reputable scientist disagrees with everything he says, he's making an exaggerated appeal to authority. I refer to these forms of rhetoric as artificial intelligence because what they do is they try, they really serve the purpose of convincing the already convinced. If you want to open up a real conversation, you don't do these things. You don't do these things. And here's the deal. Dawkins has a wealth of important facts that are worth reflecting on, that are really worthy of discussion. But he undermines his own effectiveness when he resorts to tactics like these. Likewise, those of us who believe that the scriptures are true, we will undermine our own credibility if we engage in these tactics. And the deep truths of Scripture are far too important to be undermined by artificial intelligence. So let me offer a framework that's very different than Dawkins does um, as we open up this series. And let's begin here. There's a place to write this in your notes as well. There's a big difference between a Rome denier and a thoughtful, intelligent, truth-seeking individual who embraces Romans 1. This will make more sense in a second. Let me read it again. There's a big difference between a Rome denier and a thoughtful, intelligent, truth-seeking individual that embraces Romans 1. People that disagree with Dawkins aren't all Rome deniers, aren't all history deniers. We believe that Romans 1 in the Scripture is speaking truth, and that's what we're going to look at for most of our time here together today, Romans 1. So if you have your Bibles, let's open now to Romans 1, and let's pick up with verse 14. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. Um, the author here is a man named Paul. This is a real letter to real people living in Rome. He writes this. He says, I'm under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, I wasn't planning to start here when I started Romans 1. I was going to jump ahead some verses, but as I was reading this, reflecting on this, I'm like, this is an important place to start, especially in light of today's topic. This frames everything else that follows. Now, there's something going on in these two verses that I've missed and that could be easy for others to miss unless you're digging deep into it. It looks like Paul is writing off people as barbarians, you know, as you just read that through the surface. But what he's doing apparently is not that because if he was writing off this whole group of people as barbarians, he'd be writing off most of his fellow Jews who weren't Greeks. He would also be writing off the Roman audience that he was writing to. So there's more going on here. He's not calling all the Romans a bunch of barbarians. He appears to be subtly challenging Roman pride and also making a comment about divisiveness, a divisive mindset. Because the Greeks who had ruled the world centuries before the Romans, they divided the world into two groups, the Greeks and the barbarians. So who would the precursors to the Roman Empire have been? The barbarians. So he's using some you know, subtle wordplay here. You're not barbarians, but you were once considered barbarians by these Greeks. And in the next, very next verse that we're going to look at in just a second, Paul references the Jews. 
Now, many of the Jews divided the world into two groups. There were the Jews and there was everybody else. Sometimes they referred to everybody else as the Gentiles. Sometimes they referred to everyone else as the nations. But there were the Jews and then there was everyone else. Dawkins does the same. He divides the world into those who agree with his book and the ignorant, closed-minded history deniers. Well, in this part of the letter of Romans, Paul begins to talk about what he calls the gospel. The gospel. It is something that he believes everyone needs to hear, not just one group. He believes everyone needs to hear the gospel. Let's read a little bit more about the gospel, picking up where we left off with verse 16. He says this about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, as Paul was writing this letter, the gospel was already at work. It was breaking through barriers that separated the Jews and the Greeks, and it was at work in so many lives. Included in this gospel was the powerful truth that the saving love and power of the one true God was available to everyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul couldn't wait to come to Rome now to share this gospel. He wasn't ashamed of it. On the contrary, he had found there's a power at work in this. This isn't just a story. There's a power at work in this gospel, in it and through it. And he had witnessed remarkable things time and time again as he shared this gospel. Author N.T. Wright, pastor, scholar, author N.T. Wright did a very good job of summarizing this in a quote. I also put this in your notes because it's worth looking at again. He says this about the gospel. When you announce Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord, which is the essence of the gospel, when you announce Jesus as a crucified and risen Lord of the world, something happens. The new world which was born when Jesus died and rose again, it comes to fresh light life in the hearts and minds and lifestyles of the listeners, or at least some of them. It's not magic, though it must have sometimes felt like that. Some of you probably been in that situation too. You share the gospel, you're like, why is anybody going to believe this without more of a convincing elaboration? And it just has power, intrinsic power. It is God's power at work through the faithful announcement of his son. So Paul couldn't wait. I, I want to share this with, in, in Rome. He knew that the gospel shed new light into the very character of God. The gospel helps people understand God's love and God's justice along with his plan to rescue and redeem and reconcile a broken world. That's really important. A broken, a fallen, a world in which sin has entered into it. That's why Paul's not ashamed to bring the gospel to Rome. In Paul's day, that region of the world revolved around that one city, Rome. And that one city revolved around one man, Caesar. Paul wasn't ashamed to bring this gospel to Caesar. And he found strength in ancient scriptures like this one. He might have been alluding to scriptures as he said what we just read. He says this in, in Psalm uh, Psalm 119.46, this is an ancient scripture that he maybe was referring to when he said, I'm not ashamed. It says, I will speak your decrees before kings, and I shall what? Not be ashamed. 
Now, in his presentation of the gospel, Paul was drawing strength from the scriptures, but he was able to point to more than the scriptures. And that's where a lot of us get into trouble. Sometimes we, we quote scripture to people who don't believe scripture, right? And, and he, had, he was able to point to more than that. He was able to point to the creation itself as he presents the gospel. He points to creation itself. Let's go back to the text. Romans 1, picking up with verse 18, right out of the letter here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, women, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. They're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points out a problem that begins in our minds and then moves deeper into our souls. When we fail to honor and thank our creator, we become futile in our thinking and our hearts become darkened. Back to N.T. Wright, he, he says it well in this quote. He says this, By itself, human reason can no more be guaranteed to tell us which way to go than a compass in a room full of strong magnets. Isn't that good? Reason alone isn't enough. When we reject the notion of a creator, when we fail to honor and thank him, a destructive combination of pride and denial and rebellion takes root in our lives. Which brings us to verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now what Paul does right here is he turns a corner and he begins to discuss the consequences when we fail to thank and honor God and instead turn our allegiance and our devotion to ourselves and to other non-gods. And that's what we pick up with verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the served and worship and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When we worship the creator whose image we bear, then we reflect his image, right? When we suppress the truth, we become capable of profoundly destructive behaviors. Now, we're going to jump, um, in, in a future series, we'll look at verses 26 and 27. We don't have time to unpack that one here, but someday we will. We'll return back to those in context. What I'd like to do right now is to jump ahead to verse 28. And I also want to say, if you are in the skit, now would be a good time to make your way to the back if you haven't already. If you're in the skit, head on back and get your costumes on. A little foreshadowing. All right, picking up with verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, so again, now what they're doing, instead of worshiping, they're choosing to, to go their own way, to serve themselves, to serve the creation rather than the creator, they did not see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. 
They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetedness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice I was reading one of my commentators, and they said, he was talking about, he goes, I know these people. I know these people. How many of you know people that have some of these qualities? Or you see them in the newspaper, whatever. And then he did a good job. He said, yeah, we, we know them pretty well. Just look in the mirror. Right? You know, a lot of us, we see these very same things in our own lives. So now, according to folks like Dawkins, they would look at that, and they'd say, this proves there's no creator. Because why would a creator create something this broken? And one of the things that he does in extended argument in his book is he says, you know, take something like a lion. Why would God create a lion? Because lions, they've got these fangs that appear to be getting better at devouring. They've got claws that seem to be getting better at catching and killing prey. They have bodies that seem to be getting better at being stealthy. They have digestive systems that seem perfectly suited to eating other creations. This makes no sense, he says, if you believe in God. It makes perfect sense if you believe as I do. That's the case he makes. Now, this is why we need a richer understanding of the scriptures and the gospel because they present a very different, and may I suggest, a much more hopeful contrast to that of Dawkins' worldview. Next week, we're going to dive into Genesis 1. Brandon's going to take us in there. I'd encourage you to read it ahead of time. Study it ahead of time. One of the things I'd ask you to look for in light of what we're talking about right now was the creation devouring itself before sin came into the world. Is there any evidence that creation was devouring itself besides the plants, poor plants, you know, but were creatures, the animals, were they devouring other animals? Or does that appear to be part of God's original intent? Or does devouring one another come after sin enters the world? Is it the result of humanity failing to honor and thank their creator, which is the case that Romans makes here? Could this be perhaps why something so natural feels so wrong? Could this be true? The Bible presents a very different origin story than Dawkins does. And Scripture also presents a different future as well. If the Christian understanding of the future is true, then lions won't get better at devouring lambs until the sun runs out of fuel. One day, both will lie down together in peace. Bacteria and viruses won't keep getting more and more resilient until they destroy all other life. According to the scriptures, one day sickness and disease will be no more. And people won't keep developing more destructive weapons and new ways to inflict pain and terror on one another until we all destroy each other completely. That's not what the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative is one day all evil and evildoers will be cast out of God's kingdom. If Dawkins is right, in his future, a microorganism could evolve that destroys all life as we know it. Or another Hitler could arise and this time succeed in his or her quest to dominate the world. However, 
if Christians are right, then the decisive battle for the destiny of this creation has already been won. When the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us and humbled himself and laid down his life for us, and he did so, listen to this, he did so not to save those who were good enough or strong enough or smart enough, those who had evolved to the perfect end of the continuum of the spiritually fittest scale. That's not what we're looking at. That's what evolutionary theory would dictate. Our creator did precisely the opposite because we weren't good enough, we weren't strong enough, we weren't smart enough, we weren't perfect enough. According to the gospel, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us on a Roman cross. Humanity needed a savior and God made our salvation possible. The lion became the lamb. The strong exhibited his great strength through weakness so that all who place their faith in him can be saved. Now, how has God used evolutionary processes? We'll wrestle with that question in the weeks ahead. But the point I want to make today is this, that the deep, an eternally significant truth of the gospel is far too important to be undermined by our use of artificial intelligence. So, as much as it depends on us, can I count you in to not engage in straw man arguments and not engage in ad hominem attacks and not engage in exaggerated appeals to authority And can we please, 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 please agree to fact-check our facts before we present them as evidence? And would you join me today in committing to pursuing thoughtful and respectful conversation instead of just attacking people who disagree with you? My own life is a testimony to the fact that, that we're more apt to listen to people who will listen to us than people who just want to try to ram facts and figures down our throat. You know, who who are going to point us to Christ instead of just trying to win arguments. All right, well, as we close today, kids, how about we summarize today's teaching with a skit? Does that sound fun to wrap things up with a skit? All right, let's do it. Well, this skit is a special kind of skit. It's called a spontaneous melodrama. We attempted one of these in here before. Um, And what that means is most of the cast, most of the cast didn't even know they were going to be in a skit until this morning. Most of them didn't even know. Some of them did, but most of them didn't even know. This cast has not practiced this skit all together uh, until just now. And as the first service, you're going to get a chance to see this. So what will happen is I'll be reading the script. They'll be spontaneously acting this out uh, as we go along. And I can see we have our first actor in the back, Nick Fury. Would you kind of come up here as I pull out my script? And uh, (laughs) Nick Fury, he comes on up. All right. And here we go with our script. (laughs) Nice. All right. Today's drama opens with S.H.I.E.L.D. director Nick Fury standing on the deck of his hover carrier, awaiting the arrival of the Avengers, who came flying in on their Quinjet. (laughs) 
could end it right here. <laughs> All right, when the jet landed, the Avengers stepped out and struck a dramatic action pose. Nick Fury got right to the point and said, Ultron has survived. The Avengers gasped. <laughs> the congregation gasped. Nick Fury gasped and continued. Ultron has weaponized artificial intelligence. <laughs> if Ultron puts on one of his devices, if Ultron, if Ultron puts a device on your head, you'll become his minion. <laughs> Captain America asked a question. What do we know about this weapon? Nick Fury replied, We don't know much, Cap. We don't know much, Cap. What we do know is this. What we do know is this. An attack on Ultron, An attack on Ultron triggers the weapon's defenses. Triggers the weapon's defenses. So, whatever you do, so whatever you do, don't attack. Don't attack. As soon as he finished saying don't attack, Ultron appeared. Be scared, it's just a costume, right? All right, when Ultron reached the hover carrier, he said, Did somebody say attack? Did someone say attack? Iron Man noticed the three devices in Ultron's hands, and he noticed that they resembled graduation caps. He couldn't resist the opportunity to get in a quick quip. Iron Man pointed his hands at Ultron and said, You're about to get a graduate course. In repulsors. What? Repulsors. <laughs> the weapons in your hand. Hawkeye, Hawkeye rolled his eyes and said, definitely not one of your best, Tony. Jarvis added, Iron Man must be getting rusty. Iron Man must be getting rusty. Get it? Rusty? Rusty. Before Iron Man could re-quip, Hulk cried out, Hulk smash! And the semi-spontaneous melodrama went into slow motion as Hulk attempted to attra attack Ultron. Hulk took a slow motion swing, but Ultron blocked the slow motion swing with one of his devices. He then placed the device on Hulk's head. Hulk was now under the control of his adversary. Now Thor refused to believe that attacks don't work. Thor raised his hammer to the sky and said, stop. Hammer time. Fresh new kicks and bands. You got it like that. Now you know you want to dance. So move out of your seat and get a five go and dance this beat while it's rolling. Hold on. Pump a little bit and let the noise go on more. Like that. Like that. Hold on a minute. Just a ball on back. Let them know. Yeah. All right. As, as the music faded, Thor exclaimed, Henceforth, this shall be my theme song. And then he added, I shall now, I shall now knock, the knock the device off of Hulk's head, of Hulk's head. With, my with my hammer. Once again, the semi-spontaneous melodrama went into slow motion. Before Thor could knock the hat off of Hulk's head, Ultron snuck up behind Thor and placed a device on his head as well. Ultron let out a mechanically maniacal laugh. Captain, Captain America, Captain America realized a new plan was needed. He turned to Iron Man and said, Stark, Stark. Can, you buy us some time? can you buy us some 
Iron Man flew to the middle of the middle aisle. <laughs> and said to Ultron, Thor and Hulk, who wants to play? Pin the hat on the Tin Man. And Iron Man flew off stage with Ultron, Thor, and Hulk in hot pursuit. On his way out, Ultron dropped one of the devices. Nick Fury said, great call, Cap. What? He said, great call, Cap. Great call, Cap. Natasha, can you hack the hat, said Nick Fury. Natasha, can you you hack the hat? hat? Black Widow replied, "We'll we'll know in a minute. And Black Widow did several unnecessary flips <laughs> on her way to retrieving the device that Ultron had dropped. <laughs> after, after examining the device, she called out, every time, every time we attack, we trigger the device's defenses. We, the defenses. we have to find a way to, to way. encourage Hulk and Thor, Hulk and Thor, to take off their own hats. Captain America. <laughs> Captain America contacted Iron Man on his thumb phone. Okay, Iron Man, he said. You can bring him back. Iron Man replied, suit up, gang. Iron Man replied, suit up, gang. I'm bringing the grad party to you. Hawkeye spoke into his own thumb phone and said, still not your best work, Tony. Jarvis also spoke up and said, you must be getting rusty. Get you it? Must be getting rusty. Rusty. Iron Man came flying back in with Ultron, Thor, and Hulk in close pursuit. <laughs> but before Thor and Hulk could attack their friends, Captain America asked them this question. He said, "Why are you wearing those hats?" Uh, why are you wearing those hats? Ultron's supercomputer brain quickly calculated what could happen if Thor and Hulk began an actual conversation instead of simply attacking. With an Ultron cried out in desperation, "Don't think," he said. Just attack! attack. Black Widow approached Hulk. She tossed her hair back. And the beauty said to the beast, Is that what you want? Is that what you want? To attack me, Bruce. Bruce. Ultron yelled at Hulk, No, don't stop and think! think. You're a beast! You're You're beneath logic! But it was too late. Instead of simply attacking like Ultron wanted him to, Hulk paused to consider Black Widow's question. And the question worked. Hulk removed the device from his head, pounded it on the ground, and said, puny hat. Hulk and Black Widow skipped off into the sunset with their new jam. (laughs) All right, we're almost to the end. All right, Ultron turned to his remaining minion, Thor, and commanded him to attack. Attack! Suddenly, out of nowhere, Batman appeared. Batman Batman tossed back his cape and said, is that what you want? To attack me, Thor. Thor replied, yes, yes, I do. Hawkeye raised his hand and said, so do I. And Jarvis chimed in, saying, don't we all? Don't we all. And you know why? And you know why? To which Batman replied, because I'm Batman. Thank you, Jarvis. And Batman, being Batman, waited for a fist bump from the disembodied Jarvis. Captain America realized that he needed to refocus his team on what mattered most. He said, listen. Listen. We all want to attack Batman. We don't want to attack Batman. But let's remember our mission. Let's remember our mission. 
gentlemen, gentlemen. And, Stark. and Stark, can we agree to stand down for the greater good? Thor removed his hat. And all of the remaining Avengers assembled together for a big group hug as Jeff played their new jam. Alright, Nick Fury noticed that Batman was still standing alone in the back of the room. So he invited Batman to join them by saying, Hey, Dark Knight. How about bringing it in? How about bringing it in? To which Batman replied, no time for hugs. This hero is hungry. And Batman took off in search of a food court, setting in motion the plot line for our next spontaneous melodrama. Meanwhile, Ultron began to prepare himself for another attack from the reunited Avengers. But to his surprise, instead of an attack, Jarvis simply asked a question. Why you gotta be so rude? Don't you know I'm AI too? Take it away. Beat that. Huh. Why you gotta be so rude? <laughs> Don't you know I'm AI too? At that moment, in truly oversimplistic, spontaneous melodramatic fashion, Ultron realized he wasn't standing in the presence of enemies, he was standing in the presence of friends. Ultron felt safe enough to lay down his defenses and seek the truth together in the company of his newfound community. Ultron cried out in a loud voice, I get it now. I, get it I once was lost, once was lost. But, now but now I'm found. Was blind, was blind. but now I, see. now I see. Something about that last line seems strangely familiar to the Avengers and to everyone else who was in this room on June 7th. But before the group had a chance to question the creative capacity of the scriptwriter, Nick Fury received a text from S.H.I.E.L.D. And he shared the message with the Avengers. Batman's in trouble again. Batman's in trouble again. Said Agent Fury, if we hurry, we can catch him. If we hurry, we, we, can, hurry, ca we can catch him. In week four of this series. In week four of this series. Thor spoke up and said, is there any other option? Is there any other option? His faithful sidekick, Robin, perhaps. Robin, perhaps. Hawkeye answered, remember the restraining order that Robin filed? <laughs> Thor nodded and asked, how about the Justice League then? The Iron Man broke into the discussion. How about the Fantastic Four? He quipped. How about the Fantastic Four? <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see any sequels in their future. To which, uh, to which Jarvis replied, now that was a good one, sir. Now that was a good one, sir. Captain America spoke up and said, Avengers, we... Avengers! We've been given a mission. We've been given a mission. You, with us, Ultron? Are you with us, Ultron? Ultron gave them a double thumbs up, and the Avengers and Ultron assembled for one final action pose. Then they loaded up their Quinjet, and they set out to bail out Batman on September 6th. Let's have a big hand for our cast. Nice job. Now, we won't be naive here. Uh, if Richard Dawkins watches this podcast, he's not going to say, I once was lost and now I'm found, blind when I see. But here's why this matters, and here's the last thing I'd encourage you to write down in your notes today. If the Bible is true, the world we all want is coming. The world we all want is coming.
And that's why the way in which we present this gospel matters. Would you please join me as we close in prayer today? Father, we want to honor you. you the, the, the most amazing truth that could ever be shared is the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, coming into this world, dying on the cross for our sins, rising again, and inviting us to find new life in him. Father, may we share that story with integrity and respect and tact. Help us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Have an awesome, awesome, awesome week. And we'll see you in week two of the series.